We're learning to do everything a little bit differently these days, but we're, we're okay. We'll, we'll make it, right? So, so glad to have those families. I love seeing uh, this, the church grow and thrive, and I love just the reminder that, you know what, if it's just about, if we don't invest in our future generations, the church really doesn't last that long. Maybe one generation, <laughs> and then we have to be selling off the building. And so, we are all about our kids and our young adults and our families and uh our students. In fact, yesterday I got to go paintballing with our high school group. That was my investment into the kingdom of God. So, and uh, when I got home and took a shower, I realized that the students invested in welts on my body more than I knew. So uh, we had a great time hanging out with the high schoolers, and uh, I just love seeing the life um, at the church, and, and it often is the young people. So, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 6. Feel free if you want to use a digital version, use digital, whatever it is. Um, we are in a study through the book of Acts called Unstoppable. And we're looking at the idea that when the church began, uh, the followers of Jesus first began, how it was this unstoppable movement that nothing could come against it. And we've been seeing some opposition come up. The disciples were put into prison last or into jail a couple times. Last week was the first real persecution where we saw them get this, uh, it, they got flogged, which would be 39 lashes of a whip, um, and told, don't talk about Jesus anymore, and they left there rejoicing because they could be a part of the kingdom of God, and so that's kind of where we're at. So now we're going to look at Acts chapter 6, we're going to walk you through these seven verses for today, and then give the application, what does it mean for us today, because ultimately that's the question we want to ask. So let's start off, Acts chapter 6 verse 1 says this, now, at the time when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we may put in charge of the task. So let me give you a little idea of where we're at in the story of what's happening. So the church is growing, and we have the number of disciples are increasing. And it says a complaint arose among them by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews. Another way to think of this is the Hellenistic Jews are those who are culturally Greek and, and possibly ethnically Greek as well. So the history of Israel to this point is they had just spent about the last 700 years, around 722 B.C., they were the first wave of exile happened. And from that point on, the Israelites were experiencing different levels of being dispersed among the world. And there was various empires who kind of took over the land, and there was all these different influences in the land. And so at one point, the Greek empire... Don't you love when you come and you get history class? The Greek empire uh, kind of was the dominant empire over the world. And so the universal language of trade and commerce became Greek. And much of the culture became what we call Hellenistic, or it was Greek. So by the time, and especially outside of what we know as Israel. So all that land was, uh, or anyone living there would start to become culturally Greek. And likely what would happen is if you were a Jew who maybe moved out or got taken away and the dispersion or whatever it is, over the years, it's possible, too, that ethnically, there was, through marriage and all that, that you were less and less uh, ethnically the same as those living in Israel. 
But very certainly, even if you were the same ethnically, culturally you were very different. So when it says Hellenistic Jews, it means Jews who were from the Greek. They identified as being part of the Greek culture. Their first language would be Greek. And it was very likely that they did not speak Aramaic, which was the main language of the time for in Israel. So the Hebraic Jews, this all makes sense in a moment. The Hebraic Jews were the ones who lived in what we know of as Israel today. So, and they would be, their first language would probably be Aramaic. Some of them would speak Greek because it was the international language. Um, even in the Roman Empire, the main language they still used was Greek. So some of them would speak Greek, but they were culturally, they were from Israel. They're from the Promised Land. They grew, grew up there. They ate Middle Eastern food. They had Middle Eastern culture. They argued really loud and all of that. They kind of, that was their culture. That was their way of living. And so... What we have here is there's a complaint that arose among the Hellenistic Jews that their widows were being neglected or being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. A couple weeks ago, we noticed that the church was coming together and the people were willingly giving of their stuff to take care of one another. So we found that there would be people who had means and they'd say, well, we want to care for others. What we're seeing here that one of the greatest recipients or the group that was receiving the the generosity was often the widows. Widows in their culture couldn't get jobs. They were on their own. And depending on their situation, if they didn't have money or means, they would be left to the community to take care of them. So that's what's happening here in the church. And what we see is the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek, culturally Greek Jews, were being neglected. Now, we don't know why. We don't know why. It could be that there was a language barrier. It could be that they're saying, we don't even know how to communicate and get what we need. It could be that they were saying, we have no one advocating for us. We're widows. Culturally, we're women. We can't just barge in and tell the men this is what we need. It was, there was these barriers. But whatever was happening is the Hellenistic, the Greek culture uh, families, the widows, were being neglected. Now, so they go to the disciples and they, they say, hey, we're being neglected. We need to take care of these women. And the response is, uh, as they go, they say, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Anyone think that sounds harsh? <laughs> you read that and it's kind of like, hey, these widows, uh, they, they haven't been getting food. They need some food. And the disciples are like, you know, I, I have to preach the word. I'm not, a, I'm not a waiter. I can't serve the tables. I'm way above that. That's kind of how it comes across. But we want to understand it a little bit more. Uh, again, here, serve table probably doesn't mean to serve tables like a waiter. Uh, this was actually the nuance of this word, the table, the word here, table, is the same used when Jesus turned over these tables in the temple. There's a story when Jesus was angry with these money changers, and they were using a certain kind of table in the temple, defiling the temple, and it was used kind of for commerce. And so when this word is used here, it's likely saying, hey, we're, we just don't have time to manage this budget. We're busy. We, we, you want us to crunch numbers when we're trying to fulfill what God's asked us to do, and that was preach the word of God. So they're saying, we, we, Jesus has called us to share the word of God, and we looked at last week, what is that? It is the message of life, the very message of life. It's about the life, the ways, the words of Jesus. It's about the works of Jesus, what his death and resurrection accomplished. And he said, because of what Jesus has accomplished, this is the words of life. And we don't want to neglect that. This is what our charge has been given to us by Christ himself. 
And if we start worrying about what's, you know, making sure that the doors are open in the nursery and, and, and who's going to teach junior high and now I have to go and hold babies in the nursery and, and all of these things that are going on, they say, how do I have time to preach if I'm, and, and, and minister to the word if we're doing all of the other things? And so really what they're saying was not I'm above that, but I just can't simply get to it. How can we do this and do it well? So they say then... We want to, therefore, select among you seven men of good reputation. Side note, the word seven here, culturally, that was a Jewish thing. Most of their councils were set up. They would always designate seven people as their number of completion. So for some reason, all their committees had seven people. I usually like committees of one. There's a lot less conflict, but so they like to have seven. And, and so that was just what's going on. So they say, select seven people among you of good reputation, full of the spirit. So it's saying they're identified, they're followers of Jesus, and they're full of wisdom. So they also have, they're qualified. If they're going to be handling the money and distributing needs as they come and go, let's make sure that you hire people who can handle it. Come on, where's my accountants in the house right now? You guys matter. And yet accountants aren't going to be like, whoop, whoop. They're just like, I'm here. Okay. So, so this, is, this is saying those of you who are gifted with administration and, and meeting the needs, full of wisdom and spirit. This is the job for you. So select seven people among you, and we'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. I just want to make a side note here. They are talking here about the, the first disciples devoting to prayer and the ministry of the word. But notice here, they didn't want to ever say, we're, we're way too busy to spend time with God. Those of us who have kids, you know how often it's easy to say, Man, I'd love to spend time with God, but I, it's been busy. We had to get kids to school. Well, okay, not lately. We haven't had to get kids to school. But we have to keep our kids busy. We have to, you know, get them to baseball practice, or we have to get them to dance, and we're, we're doing this. have to make, you know, we're busy people. And how easy is it to say, I, I was just too busy to even stop and pray today. I was too busy to stop and open the Bible today. I want to encourage you, not just parents, but parents, we usually use our kids as an excuse but let's find time to make, or let's find a way to make time for God. Even if it's just open up the word, read a psalm each day, read in Acts if we're studying it. Just something to keep our hearts centered. Because we live in a world where we are being bombarded with all kinds of versions of truth. And a lot of them probably really aren't truth. And if you're consuming more of the news and social media than of God, how's that go for you? I know there's been times we had to just pause and step back and say, you know, I really don't care what the news is today. Usually I'll check on first thing in the morning and just see, did anything blow up? Okay, no, cool. The world's still going. I'm going, then I'm going to put it away. I don't need to hear everyone's opinion about what's happening because that's not a great way to start my day. So I want to encourage us to do the same thing. So they say we, we don't want to, we're going to devote ourselves, verse 4, to the prayer, the ministry of the word, verse 5. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And then they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor, any of you who are expecting children or, you know, we had child dedications today. There's all kinds of great name ideas in the Bible. So here we go. So we got Nicanor, T Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Interesting thing about these names is all of these people who are just named are Greek names, Hellenistic names. So 
Sometimes in the ancient world, they'd have a Hebrew name and a Greek name, but very likely this was intentional. The disciples chose and said, hey, here's some people. Our issue right now, we're weak in our ministry to the Hellenistic side of the faith. So let's get people who understand the culture, understand the language. Let's, so you can see here, even at the very beginning, they're being very thoughtful in their approach. They're breaking down some of those barriers culturally by appointing people. And it says in verse 6, they brought these before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. This is a symbol in uh, their culture of laying a hands on them was a way of giving the authority and saying they now have the authority that we have to complete this. They're not just, uh, it's not like one of those, the authority with or responsibility with no authority. This is responsibility with authority. So some of you need to go to your bosses and say, can you lay your hands on me and pray for me and transfer that authority that you gave me responsibility for? No? Anyone? Just trying to keep you awake here today. Let's go. And the word of God kept on spreading, verse 7, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So we see that through this, the people were pleased at the response, and the word of God was continuing to grow. Disciples and even a great many number of priests became obedient to the faith. That is kind of an interesting statement in there. What would it have been like for a priest to become obedient to the faith? See, because the priests, their whole job was all about making sacrifices on behalf of the people. It was saying, hey, I'm going to get you into the presence of God. That's my job. But now in Jesus, the message of life is you no longer need a priest because Jesus is your access to the Father. You can pray directly. So here's we see priests becoming obedient to the faith. So the message of Jesus is really making a huge difference. It's changing even in unexpected places, changing lives in unexpected places. So what can we learn from this? I want to give you a few ideas of what we learned from this. There's three phrases. I'll tell them to you now. We'll go back to them. I think the, the lessons we get from this today is we want to be people who are, we want to be open, we want to be faithful, and thirdly, be still. So those of you who like to take notes, be open, be faithful, and be still. Let's unpack that for a moment here. First one is this. Be open. Now, be open to what? A few things. One, be open to see what God is doing around you. Notice in those first three verses, the disciples apparently were unaware of what was happening. I don't think they intentionally were neglecting the Hellenistic Jews. Even if they were, they were open to what God was doing around them. And when someone brought that, that to their attention, they were able to respond. But they were open to what God was doing around them. They were open to hearing and learning from others. So here's a challenge for us today. Let's be open to hearing and learning from one another. That can be challenging sometimes. That actually takes humility and trust. Let me ask you this. Any of you who um, know anybody? So if you know at least one other person, okay? So if you don't, we'll, we'll talk to you afterwards. But so maybe... If you're married, if you have parents, if you have kids, uh, you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever situation of life you're in, how does it go when one of them comes to you and lets you know about something you're doing wrong? How many of you hear it when you say like, hey, you know, Ryan, you, uh, you said you were going to do this. You said you're going to get it done today, and you haven't done it yet. I mean, this is a hypothetical; it's never been said to me. But so, 
I thought you were going to clean up the kitchen today. Are you going? And to which usually I'm like, is it still today? You know, it's, it's not, we're not done with today. Um, but so when someone comes to you with a, maybe a criticism or a suggestion or, hey, this is where you're falling short. How many of you don't, you don't have to raise your hand. Your first response is, oh, you're so right. I'm sorry. Thank you for pointing out the blind spots in my life and helping me be a better person. That's awesome. Or how many of you, even if you know they're right, your kind of your first response is like, like, whoa, you do this. <laughs> it's funny seeing the couples elbowing each other right now. That's a kind of amazing. Usually Sunday mornings are the best time of the week to have a fight. It's usually on the way, you know, to worship the Lord. So some of you, it's fresh. Good. So we're, here we are today, but how many of us, our posture is defensive, even when we don't mean to be? It's just a first natural reaction. And sometimes it's because we just got pointed out that we're not perfect. And one of my biggest struggles is I, I don't want to screw up. I want to be perfect. I, I do. It's just, I know you say, like, you shouldn't want to be perfect, Ryan. My natural desire is to keep working harder to be better and better at whatever it is. So if someone points out something I do wrong, my first reaction is kind of like, not mad at them that they pointed it out, but it's mad that I wasn't able to be good enough. Anyone with me on that? You tracking with me? Okay. But notice this. They were open to the criticism. And it took a lot of humility to say, you know what, we might have a blind spot here. They were open to the people that God has placed in their lives. So we want to be open to the people in your life. If you are in a marriage, be open to one another. How do you see the world? People in your workplace, people in your neighborhood, people in your school, in your classroom. Everyone has a different story, and we can learn from one another. You know, just this last week, I was uh, in the beautiful state of Tennessee, and uh, I had uh, lunch with a couple of pastors who uh, one's an African-American pastor over a very large African-American church in Memphis, and also oversees uh, a, a ton of different uh, ministries there, a lot of churches. And another one was an African-American pastor who was over, he was hired to work in a historically and a predominantly white church. Okay, so both of these guys, we had lunch together. And in Memphis, Tennessee, and if you know anything about our history in our country, Memphis has been a little place of tension, racial tension through the years. It's a place where Martin Luther King was assassinated. And it was so great to have lunch with these uh, brothers in the Lord. And one of them told me, as he's talking to me, he said, you know, and he's much, uh, been in ministry much longer. He was a lot older and just looked at me and said, you know, when I look at you being white, I have all these assumptions about how, who you are. I have assumptions about how you think. And I have assumptions about what you think about me. And he said, it's times like these when we're having a meal together that I'm reminded once again of how wrong I can be. And the other brother, I'm looking at him, he's leading a, a primarily, a, a predominantly white church in Memphis. And I said, what is that like? And to have this conversation, to hear of their struggles, to say, like, what has this year been like for you? Not just coronavirus, but all the tension with race. How has this been for you? And to hear him just share wisdom and look me in the eyes and and just say, you know what, you have a role in your church. Because don't call on me to help you through this. Like, I'll give you advice, but you know what, you lead. And just this wisdom coming from them and this wisdom of them sharing their experience was, I was learning and growing. 
and being able to just have this dialogue. We want to be open to people in our lives. Now, I know, and I've talked with some of you, you know, a lot of people who are white like me, this year, I've heard some say, I've heard just too much about race this year. I'm, I'm kind of fatigued. And I just think, yeah, I get it. But how great is it when we start hearing from others and learning and seeing how deep the bonds go in the body of Christ? When I can look at my African-American brothers who lived through the civil rights movement and to learn from them and hear their perspective and say, wow, there might be blind spots in my life. How can I learn from you? It's this beautiful picture that happened here in Acts chapter 6 where the Hellenistic Jews shared some of their perspectives and the disciples learned they were open. So let's be people who are open to what God's doing and who he's placed in our lives. Next thing is this, be faithful. Notice what the disciples understood. They said, if we spend all of our time trying to run everything in the church, we're not going to be faithful to what God has uniquely equipped and placed us to do. So we want to be people who be, be faithful in the opportunities and calling God has given you. So basically, here's this. Be faithful being the person God has made you to be with the gifts that you have and the passions you have. Be faithful in that. And don't look and say, well, you know what? I, it's not like I can get up and preach, or I don't really feel like being a junior high core group leader, but you should. You should feel like it. Right, Tim? Back there? Yeah. So... But whatever it is, you say, I, I'm not gifted in this. Maybe I'm not good enough. Or maybe my gift doesn't measure up. Or it's, But be faithful where God has placed you and who he's made you to be. You know, here at this church, we have this really cool ministry uh, to single moms. And being a single mom must be a very difficult thing. And think of how difficult it would be this year, too, when most have their kids home all the time. You're trying to navigate that and trying to work and, and meet needs. And so... We had a group of people here at Seacoast who saw that need and started, uh, created a ministry to single moms. And it's so great. We met with them and prayed for that ministry just a couple of weeks ago. And you're going to hear from them next week uh, in an interview style just what's going on there. But it's so cool to hear how so many people are using their gifts to bless these moms who are part of our church family. If, if there's a few guys who are doing handyman work. If that's a gift of yours, there's times when, when they have handyman work that needs to be done in their home. There's some people who have been helping them navigate some of the paperwork, and even sometimes there's some legal things that they need help with, uh, navigating kind of the social services and finding where are the needs and resources. It's difficult when you are trying to raise a family and pay bills to find time to find the resources you need. So we have people in church who are trying to meet and help with some of those needs. We even have one person who loves to cook. And twice a month, yeah, that's a good gift. Twice a month, he actually makes meals for all the families who are in the single moms ministry, and they come and they collect the, the meals twice a month, and they, they get a free meal uh, twice a month where they don't have to cook. Um, no, you can't sign up for that if you're not in the single moms ministry, okay? But what I love about it is these people who are being faithful with the gifts that God has given them. So we want to be faithful with the opportunities and calling God has given us. The disciples modeled that. They understood they were uniquely gifted or positioned to, to bring the message of life. What is it for you? And it might be you're gifted with students. Maybe you're gifted with music. Maybe you're gifted with hospitality. All of those things are a way to serve one another in the body of Christ. John Foreman said this. John Foreman is a musician. He's a lead singer of Switchfoot. He has his own work. 
someone was talking to him about his music and, and kind of elevating it, and he, he came back and said this, there's no hierarchy of life or songs or occupation, only obedience. We all have to take up our cross and follow. We can be sure that these roads will be different for all of us, just as you have one body and every part has a different function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each of us belongs to the others. Get this last part. Please be slow to judge brothers who have a different calling. Please be slow to judge others who have a different calling. Don't think, well, I kind of have a more lofted position. I get to preach the word. Or say, man, I have a humble position. All I do is cook food twice a month for families. Or all I do is serve in the food bank as many people at Seacoast twice a week. That doesn't seem as great of a calling. No, don't think that. Let's be slow to judge each other's calling. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says this, God gives some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some are pastors and teachers for this, for the equipping of the saints for works of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. See, the goal of the church is to equip one another, to equip each other for the works of ministry. It's not the paid staff who do all the work. In fact, it shouldn't be because we don't have the very various gifts and passions that you have. We all together form one body, and so that's what it's about. So be faithful where God has called you. Last one is this, be still. Here's what I mean by that. Be still and trust the outcome to God. How many of you like to control the outcome of everything? How many of your spouses like to control? No, sorry, don't raise your hand now. Don't, don't do that one. So it is so natural for us to want to control the outcome of everything. As a parent, I want, I want my kids to learn and to grow and be able to think from themselves as long as they think the way I tell them to. I'm fine with them to have independent thinking as long as it matches up with what I want them to think. So it, we want to be in control of the outcome of things. When I pray for someone to be a Christian, I want it to just happen right away. Why doesn't it? Many of you are praying for family members. And you're wondering, okay, what do I need to do to seal the deal and help them have a life change? But notice these disciples. They were faithful. They were open to the, what's going on around them. They were faithful to the calling. And then look what happened. Disciples were added daily. Many priests came to believe, became obedient to the faith. They trusted that ultimately God was in control of the results. And if God's in control of the results, guess who doesn't have to be? You don't have to be. <laughs> Look at the person next to you and say, you don't have to be in control of the results. Come on, tell them this morning. Preach to them. This is your chance, high schoolers, to tell your parents right now. I'm giving you permission to preach to them. You don't have to be in control of the results. Let's be open to what God's doing. Let's be faithful to the call. And let's be still. And one of the best ways to be still that I am not good at is let's be people who pray, who keep going to the Lord. Let's trust him to move. Take time to ask God to move and then say, Lord, I want to be in control, but I can't be. It's yours. Would you shape and change my kids? Would you shape and change my own heart? Lord, would you move? Let's be people of prayer. And then let's see what happens. As we end, I want to share this quote with you from Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom and her family were uh, hiding 
Jews during World War II who were trying to escape the Nazi regime. And she said this, faith sees the invisible, it believes the unbelievable, and it receives the impossible. And she was talking about this in the context of prayer. As we pray and trust God, as we're sti- we be still and trust God to be God, faith will see the invisible, it will believe the unbelievable, and it will receive the impossible. Let's follow the model of the early church. Let's be open to the way God is moving. Let's be faithful where he's placed us. And let's be still and let God be God. I'm going to close in prayer and invite our worship team back up as we end our time here today. So would you pray with me as we end? God, we thank you so much again for today. I thank you that Lord, you place people in our lives that can change us and transform us. I pray that you'd help us be people who are open. We're open to the people you put in our lives. We're open to how you're working in us through them. And we're open to what you're doing around us. And God, we pray that you'd help us be faithful where you planted us. Let us just walk with a belief in who you are and what you can accomplish. And ultimately, let us be still. Knowing, Lord, that the results are in your hands and not in ours. So we thank you for these things, God, and now we just turn our hearts to you as we respond to the God who's in control of all things. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the invisible, to believe the unbelievable. And God, today would you help us receive the impossible because of who you are. In your name, amen. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able, to as we kind of close out our time here in this song.